Welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business Podcast, where we explore the game-changing understanding that can unlock new levels of performance and well-being in the workplace. If you want to be part of a new breed of leaders in business, if you're fed up with the conventional echo chamber, and if you want to be part of a revolution in human potential, then join us to discover the powerful resource that lives before our psychology Hello and welcome to the Quality of Mind Transforming Business podcast series. And today's episode, I've got another conversation lined up with a a colleague and friend, Naftali Vissa. Naftali lives in the US and we're hoping to have what I think will be a really intriguing and interesting conversation about how this wonderful understanding that we share with our clients can help beyond the individual and how it can make a difference to society and the systems uh, we live in. So, Naftali, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to have you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome to be here. Well, we've known each other for a couple of years and uh, been having more and more conversations recently. Can you give listeners just a minute or two on your background and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. I, um, for most of my career, I've been in technology, uh, writing software or, you know, managing that process uh, in, to some degree. I've had a few entrepreneurial gigs as well. And um, just through all of those experiences, I just sort of came to realize that my largest skill was in understanding how people work, much more so than understanding how computers work. And so, um, you know, a few years ago now, I, I sort of transitioned to, um, you know, being a, whatever you want to call it, business coach like you are, and helping businesses to thrive through a better understanding of um, how the human mind works and, uh, you know, just helping them to be more lighthearted and happy and uh, have a better experience of life. And of course, as you know, as it turns out, when, when those things happen, all the normal, typical business things go a whole lot better. Um, so, and then if we just zoom out a little bit, you know, the real, the real reason that I really want to do this work is, um, because, you know, and we're going to talk about this today is it's because I really have a strong belief that, uh, peace in a greater sense is possible. And, um, since we all spend so much time and effort and a lot of our identity is wrapped up in, in work and business, it seems like a really good avenue to get towards, uh, towards that greater peace. Yeah, and we're certainly going to unpack that uh, in a moment. And, and I love your background because the way I listen to it is that you were someone who was just doing what they did in life, in business, and started to see the relevance of understanding more about the nature of what we are in the mind and how useful, practical, and lovely that is. So you weren't necessarily on a spiritual path or anything and seeking, seeking. You were just going through life and it just occurred to you how relevant and powerful the role of people in the mind is, which I think points to the practical nature of what we do. Because sometimes we talk to our clients and it can be pretty profound what we're pointing to, but the benefit is always day-to-day in the practical, in life, in in what I'm doing in life and work. It's great that you come from that place because I think it's a wonderful grounding to have alongside your sort of more, let's call it spiritual grounding, if you want to call it that. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Um, you've also written a wonderful book, which I'm going to plug more towards the end of the show and put in the show notes, because I think it's a very, it's a nice read and it's very accessible. So for today, we wanted to get into the relevance and the benefits of this sort of beyond the individual and, and the nature of that. So do you want to start us off by just saying a little bit about how you see that? And then we'll unpack it as we go. Yeah. Should we, I mean, maybe should we, should we talk about what the this is? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I always, when I'm doing this show, I always have to bear in mind that we're going to have what I call the regular quality of mind listeners and then people who may be brand new. So let, let's do the this for people who uh, have just stumbled across this episode and know nothing about what we normally talk about on the uh, podcast. Yeah. Should I have a go? Please. Okay. Um, so just, I guess to keep it really, really, really simple, you know, we, I'd say that the this is an understanding of what I and some other people refer to as the human operating system, right? So what is it that makes every human being tick? What is it that brings, that brings life to life for all of us? What is it that creates 
and experience of life for all of us. And by all of us, I mean all of us, you know, regardless of your race or religion or your upbringing or where you grew up or any of those things. The same process, if you will, brings life to life for all of us. And in a nutshell, that's basically, you could say that, you know, we, we receive sensory input from our five senses and that sort of gets mixed up in a big bowl of soup uh, with every, uh, with all of your, what we might call programming, all of your past experiences, your religion, your culture, your identity, like all of that kind of stuff. Every time your mom yelled at you, that all gets mixed up in a big bowl of soup. And then your mind takes that and projects it onto a big movie screen in front of your face. And not only does it project it, but then it forces you to watch this movie as if it's a documentary. So we go through life and we observe things and then our mind convinces us that all of that we are observing is very real. And, um, and, and that's what makes life look real to us. Now, of course, life is going to look different to me than it is to you and different to everybody. Of course, there's going to be significant overlap but it does look a little bit different. But it also turns out that the mind is not really a great, uh, a reliable source of factual information. In fact, it's, it's, it's horribly unfactual, right? The, there's a funny joke that I like, like, you know, the same mind that convinces you to eat a whole bag of potato chips five minutes later will tell you, like, that was a stupid idea, right? It's the same, it's the same mind that does that. You know, the same mind that one day, one morning, one minute makes you feel like, you know, you're a rich, successful guy. 10 minutes later, it can make you feel completely worthless. You know, it's not a reliable source. So when, just to back it up to what you said, like, how do we, how does a better understanding of that understanding uh, affect the world at large? And I think that that's where we want to go with this, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I love the way you, you describe the this. Uh, I think that's a neat way of putting it. And I think the only bit, little bit I would add to the this that has become more and more relevant for me in the last sort of four or five years is that the me that thinks it's seeing the world, the me that thinks it's having this experience, either the external one of the trees and cars and people or the internal ones with its thoughts, is also on the screen is also a thought. So what we really are is not the thing that's perceiving the world or having these thoughts. We're aware of that. Now, the reason that's relevant is because when we think we're the me, it limits us. When we realize we're something far wider and more expansive than that, that is universally shared, which I'm sure we're going to get into, um, it gives us just a different feel and sense on life. So, um, I totally agree that the mind, and I, I love the example where the, that mind that tells you to eat a whole pack of what we would call crisps over here in this, this side yeah. of the world, right? Potato chips. Um, five minutes later then goes, oh, what did you do that for? That's a really bad idea. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely the same mind, right? It's one. Um, but neither of them are us in what we truly yeah. are. And I think that's the yeah. biggest mistake we have that when we think that it's my mind and I need to control my mind and my mind is the world and that kind of stuff because it's an unreliable source of how right. to, what to base ourselves on. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one implication for that, in, if we think about, you know, the world or we talk about, you know, making global peace or, or equality or, or hunger, or any of these sort of big world problems, one of the implications of, of what you just said that I think is really important is seeing that everybody else is working from a paradigm that seems real to them in the moment, right? And by seems real to them, I mean, sort of that chatter, whatever their mind is telling them at the moment, like eat a bag of chips or go be hurtful to somebody else or whatever it is. If we can see that, then there's some level, there can be some level of forgiveness for other yeah. people. But I think even more importantly, especially in the culture, like a very Western culture, and especially in a culture that's now very like, like uh, accountability focused, 
you know, and, and whether that's in, in the context of like social issues or even just at work, right? Like you're responsible for, for all of your results. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, like you, if you don't, if you don't make it, it's your own fault and that kind of thing. I think to the degree that we can see that that's not true, right? That, 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 and, and we can have a level of forgiveness for ourselves and it's not for, it's not forgiving ourselves for having done something bad. It's that you are, um, you are realizing that really all of your actions moment to moment are just a product of your thinking in the moment. So if you've got crappy thinking, you're going to have crappy actions. And if you have good thinking, you're going to have good actions. And so when you can see like, oh, so, and this goes back to your point, that's not me. That's like the me on the screen, right? There's, there's a bigger me whose screen includes the, you know, the not me right? The, the, the personal me, if you want to call it that. And, and that, that me on that screen is doing, is doing sort of whatever his programming, if you want to say it is, is, is seeming real in the moment. And if we can see that that's happening again, just for ourselves, forget about anybody else for a minute. There's a lot of forgiveness that can happen, right? Oh, I, I, and just for simple stuff, like, oh, I didn't get through my to-do list today. You know, I wasn't as kind to my kids as I should have been, I, whatever. And Look, I'm not saying like these are not great things to aspire to, but I think that we're going to get there on a personal level and on a global level a lot quicker by being a lot easier on ourselves than being harder on ourselves. Mm. There's a load in what you just said, um, which I think we can unpack. There's a load in what you said. So I think one thing you sort of hinted at at the beginning there was what I would describe as we're kind of psychologically innocent. So we, we behave in the way that the world looks to us in that moment, right? As you said, if you've got bad thinking, you, you end up doing bad stuff, right? So, so there's a degree of psychological innocence that we are, and that gets confused or muddled with this accountability that you mentioned that, I mean, you know, I'm a dad. So if my kids do something, let's call it wrong, you know, like hitting their sister or, 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 or being, you know, doing something else, you would say, hey, don't do that. Take responsibility for that. So my son might forget his football boots and then he's blaming everyone else. I go, no, you, you forgot them. You know, you're old enough now to pack your own bag, right? So we, we would tell that self that made up me, that's on you, right? Now, at the distinction I'd make, at the, what I would call the game of life level, that's great. That that's helpful because the world works better if people take some degree of responsibility and accountability for what's going on at the game of life level. Now, where that becomes less helpful <laughs> is where that sort of becomes impinging on our expansive and infinite potential by thinking, well, I'm not good enough. And we run all these narratives going, the world needs to be a certain way for me to be okay. I need to, I need to, or this needs to change. You know, I need to achieve this or whatever it is. That's where it innocently gets in our way. So I, we have to distinguish between what I would call the game of life level and then how we see ourselves in relationship to this world and the apparent separation. And does that, does that a little bit make sense? Yeah. So I, I think at, at some level we have to, um, we have to make, it's an, it's, it's a pretend, it's a pretend distinction, but still yes, one to say that there's a distinction between this game of life and the sort of like larger picture of life. Right. Mm. But most of us, myself and yourself included, I'm sure are wrapped pretty wrapped up in the day to day in this game of in this game of life, right? Making a living and, and dealing with your kids and relationships and all that kind of stuff. But we, we see that there's, and again, I'm going to say another world as if it's a separate thing, but like the, the world, as you, as you put it, the world that exists before psychology, right? Or before, mm. you know, if you think about a baby that's just born, they don't have any of these concerns, right? About the, the game of life. I mean, they're still, you know, a formed human at that point, but still they don't, they don't know about work or about eating or and then nothing really, right? That, that pureness, that, um, newness, that, um, curiosity, that unknowing, all of that stuff that's in, that's in all of us. Right. And, and that would never a baby, a one day old baby 
aside from not having the cognitive capacity, but they would never blame themselves for anything because they have no, they have no point of reference, right? They have no, mm. nobody's ever taught them what's right and wrong. And, and again, most of what we teach as right or wrong is pretty subjective, right? A lot of it's really based on, on our culture and, and religion and, you know, how our parents did it and, and a lot of kind of that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, when we get so wrapped up in this game of life and, and the right way to do things, and, you know, whether like how hard should you work, right? And like, what's a good work ethic? And like all of these things that are really completely made up, but they, they become so like, Almost like concrete. Yeah. I think yeah. that's such a good way of putting it. They become these things that are made up become concrete. So whether it's lines on a map about what country is which, yeah. um, which if you go up to space and look down, it's just a big blue mess. <laughs> it, there's no lines, right? So we, we've drawn these lines and like, I own this house and not the one next door. That's, well, how, how do I know that? Well, I've got a piece of paper or maybe it's online now, land registry says I own this. So that's, that's made up, right? And th then we make it all these concepts, you know, as you said, the one-year-old wouldn't have any idea on what, what, you know, big and small, rich and poor, fair and unfair, right? Fair and unfair. I mean, that's, a, I mean, with kids, that's such a lovely one to get into with them. They go, this concept of fairness, so we kind of say, oh, you should share your toys with the kid next door. And then later on, we're going, well, life isn't fair, you know, right? And <laughs> so we make up all these concepts and then we try to navigate our way around them with rules, as you say. So yeah. how much fairness should I have? How much should I not have? Should I have a problem with yeah. that? Should I not? Um, and a lot of societal problems are coming from taking these things that are at one level useful guidance and making them into stone making them into concrete yeah. and they become thingified, don't they? The, the thingification of stuff is phenomenal. And social media can spread it now faster than ever. Yeah. It, it spreads it and polarizes it. It comes back to what we think we are, because if we define ourselves by what I would call to for regular listeners, the kind of the, the, the separate self by our, by our concepts, like he's a Trump supporter, he's anti-gay rights, he's this, or she's this, then we almost then can't listen to anything else about them because we've put them and said, you are that. Now, when we see that the, what we are and our labels are just a coming and going on the screen of perception, that they're not fixed in your identity, we can, as you said, have a sense of oneness and connection with anyone with any views at all, because that's not what they are, because we are all the same. And it, 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 the other day, it just dawned on me, I was listening to some stuff about the situation in Ukraine. And for people listening to this podcast, we're talking now in May, 2022, when there's obviously the conflict going on in Ukraine. And I was thinking that if I was sitting opposite Putin, I think, and I don't know, I would struggle to hate him, right? Not because I have any <laughs> agreement or condone any of the horrible things that are happening in that part of the world right now. Not at all. I, I, it's, it's, it's despicable what's going on, but he is just doing what he is doing because of how he sees the world or, or in technical quality of mind terms from a very contracted aperture and because of his makeup and conditioning, and he happens to have control of a lot of armies and money and weapons, he's doing what he's doing. Does that mean we should hate him and despise the guy and want to kill him and, or whatever, not in my mind, because that's not who he is. He, he's the same as me at one level, right, Putin? He, he, he's made of the same stuff. Now, vastly different view. So it's just a more, more extreme version of your guy who doesn't like Trump and carries a gun, really. And it just occurred mm -hmm. to me as I was listening to the radio about Putin, and, yeah. and I think that drives us into duality and division. Well, I think you would say this as well, but that you know, neither one of us, I don't think is prescribing like a method <clears throat> for people to do, right? Like you should listen more or sit and count to 10 before you respond or anything like that. I think that we're both saying that as you see who you are, or at the very least, as you see how the system works, so what I described as this at the beginning of the, of the show, 
as you see that your mind is just making up stuff all the time, it's kind of real that you, you're the entire you that you imagine is, is malleable, right? And so there is nothing, there's nothing, there's no position to take, right? So listening just becomes a byproduct of seeing that everybody is entitled to opinion, an opinion, right? I mean, that's kind of like a cliche, but it's a thousand percent true. Yeah. And, and, and I tell you the difference in that because, because the cliche is, I think it's taught as you should learn to listen, to respect other people's opinions or, or something like that. What we're taught, you know, yeah. you should listen. But what, what I think we're pointing to something a little bit more fundamental is that when you see what we're pointing to with the mechanics of the system and the nature of who we are, you don't have to try to, oh, I must remember to regard their point of view. It just is obvious to you that that's just a point of view and they're not different to you. Right. And right that's the difference so it's not it's not a mantra or a moral code it's a symptom yeah of 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 seeing what we're, we're pointing to um and, and i tell you what's so interesting for me actually is when i first got into doing this work um particularly from this understanding about 10 years ago i wasn't really working with the organizations or individuals so that they could help the world be a better place i was helping people for themselves and maybe, maybe their organization but not really anything wider. Um, it hadn't really occurred to me. But what I found time again when I was working with people is even though we hadn't really pointed at it or the coaching hadn't been about it, people just started to naturally, innately start to think about the bigger picture, whether that's in their society, in their community. And that just sort of happened. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. And it really, just sort of happens because I think when you have less of you on your mind, that little you, you just start to see the wider picture more. It's just a symptom. It's not because you want to be super woke or super active, you know, about that stuff. It just sort of happens when there's space. That that's what it looks like to me. I, I, you know, and it was just amazing to watch. I go, oh yeah, look, that's happening. <laughs> yeah, many, many of my clients have told me also. Can I tell a couple stories? Of course you can. Go for it. Because yesterday something very profound happened, and I think it really highlights what we're talking about in a very, very, very concrete way. So I was talking to a client, past client, who's now you know become a friend, and um, this is a this is an intense story, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to keep it not that intense. But he, as a child, um, was a victim of uh, sexual abuse, repeated sexual abuse, and. Um, recently he sort of, you know, he kind of repressed it for a long time and recently it's sort of bubbled back up and, and over the past few years, he's been dealing with, um, the, I, I'm speaking slowly to protect his identity and stuff, mm. but he's, he's been dealing with the, the legal implications and his own mental health implications from it. And, um, there's going to be sentencing for the uh, perpetrator, uh, well, a, a plea slash trial for the perpetrator at some point, uh, in, in the near future. And I asked him, my, my friend, uh, you know, in your heart, what do you want to happen? Mm. <clears throat> and he said, well, you know, I, I kind of have been like suffering for about, you know, 20 years because of this. So I think maybe this guy should suffer for 20 years. Mm. And, um, you know, and I, and I didn't, I didn't say anything and, and he just kind of kept talking and kept kept talking and kept talking and, and then he, he kind of, uh, got to this place and he was like, but, oh, though maybe like, but I'm thinking, you know, I really needed a lot of help to kind of get through this. And, and I'm guessing that this guy kind of needs a lot of help too, to get through whatever his, his issues are that led him to, to do this. And he's probably not going to get that in prison. And he just kind of kept going. He, I really didn't say anything. And he just kind of kept going in circles a little bit and roundabout and, in 20 short minutes, he went from, I would like this guy to suffer for 20 years and basically, you know, rot in prison. And the thing that he said after 20 minutes was one of the most profound things I've ever heard. <clears throat> and I get a little choked up just saying it. He said, you know what? Like, I don't want anybody to suffer. And that was it. That was it. It completely melted away. This wasn't somebody that cut him off in traffic. This was like one of the most egregious things you can imagine in society right and 
And then he even said, maybe if I could find out more about him and, and what sort of what led him to do this, it would give me some clarity as to like how to prevent it in the future. Maybe he and I could like team up somehow to prevent this from happening in the future. Right. Mm. And you're like, and you know, and this was, this is my words, not his, but like he saw this, um, perpetrator we'll call him as more similar to him than different. Yeah. And, and he saw that like, why would anybody want to create suffering from anybody? You got to break the chain at some point. You got to break the cycle. I, I think and, that's and so that's super cool. Let me just wrap this up. It's super cool that he got to that. But I think the even cooler part is that it happened so quickly and without coaxing. And I'm, my point there and is that this is in all of us, this, this like ability, capacity for clear, kind, generous, beautiful thinking. It's what we're made of, regardless of what, you know, junk has shown up in our past or anything else. It's what we're made of. And just a little bit of, you know, time, essence, whatever allows it to come up to the top. And I, and I think it beautifully illustrates what we are as humans, because his, you know, part of to start with, he was like, I want to hate, I want to, him to suffer, you know, caught in what I would call a contracted aperture, you know, like, if, if, if I've suffered, he suffered. And then as that aperture opened over the 20 minutes that you were just chatting with him and holding a space, he, as you say, he saw that we are the same. And why would I want that other bit of me to suffer? So w what a great little tiny microcosm in 20 minutes of everything that we are. Yeah. Now, maybe a listener now is going, okay, well, I can sort of see that. I can sort of see people are capable of doing both. Uh, Victor Frankl, another example, you know. So, but let's say their question is, because this is the one, the question the self-mind puts in so often is, how do I do that, you two? You two talking about this on the, on the podcast. How do I have more time in that space where I just see the oneness and the love and less time in my, my narrow aperture where I want people to suffer? How would you answer that one? Well, it's natural, right? It's kind of like saying, how do I get hungry? Or how do I fall asleep? Right? How do I fall asleep? Well, you know... Absent you doing anything to prevent yourself from falling asleep, once you're tired, you're going to fall asleep. It's the, it's the stirring of the pot that prevents you from falling asleep. And to me, it's the same, it's the same thing here with, you know, how do I be more kind or loving or tolerant or forgiving or, well, it's just how, it's just what we're made of. You just got to put aside any thinking that you have about, you know, what's right and wrong and how much you've suffered and, and all of that, which I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying like one, two, three, but if you can see again, back to what we're talking about, it's just the natural state of humans of life is stillness, right? Is I use the pond metaphor a lot, right? I mean, a lot of people do, but that like a pond is still naturally a pond is still absent wind or uh you know you throw a big stone in the water or whatever it's still and if you do throw a big stone and it makes ripples and the mud gets churned up a bit what do you do this is how do you do it how do you get it still again we not of course it's obvious you just wait and it's it's natural state it's going to become still you know most of us in this game of life as you call it are so good at practicing trying to fix things that whenever this pond becomes unstill, you know, we go get tools to try to still it. And of course that makes it worse. That only makes it worse. Like there's no, once the pond is rippling, you can't get an iron or a stick or an anything to make it flat again. You just gotta wait and realize the system is really wired that way to. And, and I think to there's, a, there's a nuance in that actually, because yeah. we try to sometimes get some stillness tools, right? Yeah. So, so we go, oh yeah, yeah, I know you just meant to wait for the mind to go still. Okay. I've, I've read that, you know, I'll, this is what people might say. So, 
they then try to do stillness. They yeah. meditate. They do mindfulness. They go for a walk. And sometimes those things have, will help, right? Sure. Spot on. You know, of course, we, we've all had a time when we are ponding ripple and we've gone outside for 10 minutes, come back and, oh, I look different now. But we're pointing to a little bit more than that. And I think this is, this is you know, a, a really foundational for me is seeing the difference between what happens through sort of what I would call that correlation of going for that walk and the mind stilling and then the world looking different and having a slightly more profound realization of what we truly are, which is stillness and how the mind innocently and visibly stirs itself up without us even recognizing and even trying to do stillness is stirring the mind up. Yeah. It's, it's a big distinction for me. Right. And, and I mean, the, the, the story that I told about my friend yesterday is the perfect example of that because he, he clearly in the 20 minutes we were talking, didn't do a no. meditation, going for a walk, <laughs> anything like that. It just came. It just came. It, it, and I think part of it is that, you know, I say like, you know, you don't need a strategy to not, you know, or I say, you know, you don't need to handcuff yourself to the radiator to prevent yourself from poking your eye out. Right. It's, it's a natural, it's a natural thing. You know, not to do that. It doesn't, and it doesn't feel good to hate. Just no, the system's telling us, isn't it? I mean, that's interesting. So that guy, your friend at the beginning of the 20 minutes would have been in one feeling state. A, a bit more of a tight, icky, kind of contracted one. And at the end of the 20 minutes, I imagine he would have just felt more open, more light, and just, yeah, yeah f- f- full of the joys of spring. Yeah, so if you're like, you know, whacking yourself on the arm with the, you know, with a stick for, you know, for 20 minutes, you don't need a strategy to stop. Pretty soon mm-hmm. you're going to realize it just doesn't feel good, so you're going to stop. And I think the same is true about any sort of hate that we have. And that mm. could be, you know, real kind of hate. And it could be even, you could call it justified hate in the, in the case of this guy, but it can even just be like, you know, that person at work who like really gets under your skin. I mean, like, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to loop back into something you said at the beginning, because I think what stops us or w- w- reason we find it harder to see that, right? that we're doing that to ourselves. Because I think half the time we can't tell we're hitting ourselves with a stick. We think it's justified. Is that mind thing, you know, the mind we were talking about with the potato chips and how it, that mind will often make it look like the thing we're doing is quite justified and necessary for our survival. So, of course. So, so if we move this to the wider picture for a moment and let's say we've got some views that the world needs to be more have more equality in it, then it would look like to us that there's people in the world that are perpetuating the wrong stuff to get towards equality and that they need to change and they're wrong and there's some activism needed to get them to change, et cetera, et cetera. And we all know various movements that have happened over what recently and and the last few decades that have tried to, to help that. And that action often comes from a place of we're right, they're wrong, or vice versa, depending on which side you're on, and comes with a degree of uh, skin in the game, as in you need to really care about this and it needs to be your number one passion and you can't tolerate anything that isn't according to your rule book. And actually, that, that's the opposite of stilling the mind. That, you know, that, that's getting revved up. But it would look like that's necessary because of that mind thing, the same mind that's telling you to eat a whole pack of chips and then telling you it's a silly idea is convincing you that's the way forward. Right. And I think that's, that's because it looks like otherwise you're apathetic or complacent. Mm. Now, from what I've seen, like, I guess the same for you, the most powerful change in action doesn't come from that space at all. No, it doesn't. And, and it's, it's, it can be unique for each person and the degree to which any of us changes only ever comes from insight and it comes from, you know, awareness. So I think with so many of the so-called movements that you talk about, 
there is very much of a language of like, you have to do X, Y, and Z. But I think a lot of the, um, a lot of people are very good hearted. I think, you know, we all are good hearted as we've been talking about, but even, even in the, in the game of life, I think very people are well-meaning. They just kind of don't know what to do necessarily, or they don't know. A lot of people maybe didn't even know of the inequality or know the degree of it or so forth. And so maybe simply awareness made a lot of people go, huh, I didn't know that. And from that, they had their own insight and said, all right, because of that, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to, you know, act differently when I hire people, or I'm going to give more money to charity or whatever it might be. But that action, if you will, that comes from a place of insight and a place of love and a place of not being condemned for not doing the right thing, that's going to make a huge bit of difference. And it doesn't create any more hurt in the world, right? Yeah. And I, I was listening to that and there's a distinction in my mind that you pointed to there neatly because I think there is the awareness of this situation, this, this inequality, um, that for whatever reason, you know, you may not know about that there is a bit of doing in that, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't realize, is that the case? Is that the statistic on that? Wow, I didn't know that. Like climate change, you know, you need to have some information to help you see that that needs addressing or inequality, you might not recognize it, you know. So, so I think there is something in having the knowledge that there's something to do. Uh, and then here's the distinction, because I think sometimes that then tumbles into I need to stand up for that and I need to get attached to that. And people that don't see that are wrong and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it goes from a, a doing of the awareness spreading, if you like, to that's a property of me, not you or, or whatever it is. And I think that's where we get attached. Whereas what you're pointing to there is through the power of insight and realization uh, and what we were saying earlier about symptom symptom of just knowing what you are once you have that piece of knowledge about that inequality and you get out of your own way an obviousness that turns up about maybe behaving differently or reaching out or do doing something that comes from that space rather than i must do something because i've been told this or because i've seen this they're very different spaces or apertures or mindsets right. and nobody wants to be told what to do right i mean no no so you know, the, the, to me, the, it's, this is a bit of, sounds like a bit of a paradox, but the degree to which we allow people, let's say you're the head of a movement or you're very involved in a movement and you think everybody, you know, everybody else should be doing these behaviors, you know, to fix the world. To me, to the degree to which you allow people to have their own insights and do whatever actions they want, they're inspired to do or not do is going to make a whole lot more different than telling people you got to do this. And if you don't, you're a bad person. Yeah. Who wants to feel that way? Yeah. You know, I, it's a difference between change through compliance and just through realization. So I was working with an organization about health and safety, sort of manufacturing construction thing, and they want people to be safe in the workplace. Makes sense. And, and they, they go to it through compliance, which is you have to wear your hat and you have to wear your glasses and your boots and you can't, your high vis and except and if you don't you get fined or fired or whatever um and some people would just do that so obviously they, they would go well, of course i'm going to do this stuff why wouldn't i it's that you know and other people go oh i don't want to do this but they're making me wear this hat and this high vis and you know basically some people had the realization some people hadn't right but because the organization didn't want to or didn't understand the nature of realization or didn't want to wait what they thought was waiting for the for the realization for people to do it through obviousness they, they chuck in a load of compliance, right? Mm -hmm. um, which to me is not the way to get change, right? You, you, you do it through realization. Now, I understand, you know, organizations may think that's too abstract or too fickle, um, but it's not really, not if you understand it, but it will happen well, individually. Incentives or disincentives work as long as people think that their feeling is coming from outside of them. Right. Yeah, if, in if, that paradigm, yeah. You know, so if, if I if I say like, hey, you're going to get fired if you don't do this and, and you get 
worried because of that, then yeah, chances are you're going to comply. But as soon as you see that like, well, nothing on the outside can make me feel any particular way, that game is over. Yeah. Right. That yeah. Because the odd person doesn't care about getting fined or getting uh, fired won't change. Yeah. So th- th- this is this is the interesting thing, isn't it? About how does a society enable that power of change through insight and realization as opposed to through guilt and compliance? I don't want to get too spacey with this, but like, how do we even know what the right thing to do is and the wrong mm-hmm. thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Some committee came up with, I mean, this is, this is a kind of a silly example because it seems like such a good idea to just wear your hat, but some committee came up with like, here's the set of rules. And all of a sudden, like we were talking about before, it becomes a thing. It becomes concrete. There's no way around this. There's no discussion. There's no, there's zero tolerance, right? Mm. And it's like, love that term. And so now it's a thing. These are the 10 pieces of equipment you must wear. And if you, and, and, and either you do it or you don't do it. Now, like, you know, George Bush said, either you're with us or you're a terrorist. And like, yeah. there's gotta be something in between, you know? <laughs> and, and, um, but why do we, why on every issue and, and even many things, which are obviously much more ambiguous than, you know, good wearing a safety hat's a good idea somebody, somebody makes a rule and then it's like, it's a policy that we have to. And and what I've seen working with companies is like, they, you know, they start out small and agile and like, they're all friends. And as they get bigger and things get tougher, more, what do they do? Rules and policies and procedures. And by the time you had 200 people, you've got so many policies and procedures. You can't move. You can't make mm-hmm. a move without breaking a rule. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, it's like those movies where they've got the, you know, the late, the art museum with all the lasers or whatever. Right. And you can't possibly make a move without breaking. You don't know what rule you're breaking, but you're breaking something. And of course that that's not, that's not a great environment for innovation or anything. No. And then because they've lost faith in, let's call it common sense or individual realization to navigate. So they think, well, just to reduce the likelihood of Five percent of people thinking it's okay not to wear their hard hat will make it a rule, right? And, yeah. and then, then it's, there's no gray area; it's all just completely binary. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, really, human beings work in the area of nuance. Of course, they do, and, and, you know. But but we don't like that because there's a, we then create the thingification of risk, uh, and off we go. So, I mean, it's, it, so on, on the other side, right? I mean, the other side, but rather than compliance, moving towards something. That there's a movement now uh, with companies having to look at their environment, their ESG, their environmental sort of footprint and their social and all that kind of stuff. And that's starting to become a thing here. So they're getting audited, like, like you get your financial reports audited, but now yeah. you're getting your ESG audited. So organizations are starting to go, oh, how, how should we do that? Now, some of them are coming at it from what are the tick boxes we need to do, right, to pass this audit and, and to uh, show our stakeholders we're, we're doing the right thing? And, and let's work backwards from that. And some are looking at it from the other way around, which is when we, I'll put this in the wrong language, but when we get in a really clear mind and we see obviousness, what do we want to be as an organization and what do we want to represent to the world, right? Which is a longer play than just ticking a few boxes. But isn't it fascinating that the ones doing the latter, as in coming at it from that very emergent, well, let's see what makes sense, have a very different culture in the organization to start with. They are, they are recognizing what human beings are and, and their relationship to the rest of the world. Yeah, so you're saying, I think, you know, an organization that has a, a visibly good culture where people are getting along well and that sort of stuff, is likely going to have a, a good environmental footprint as well, because if I'm hearing you right, because those two things are both byproducts of call it clear thinking. Y- yes, and I would include in that things like psychological safety would be in that, and actually mm-hmm. even in their own um, business model structure, in in their stakeholder structure, right? You know. <clears throat> um, 
the ones that are really pinned down to the stock market and basically if their share price drops, they suddenly put a freeze on spending and they're very short term in their knee jerk reaction to what they think success is, which is in my mind, in my little mind, a, a symptom of not clear thinking, right? You know, it's, it's very uh, outside of thinking as opposed to those that have a longer play in what they're trying to do on this world. Yeah. You'll see the symptoms pop up in num numerous of areas, including their ESG footprint. Right. And that's fascinating. It's, it's funny that we, I, you know, the B corporation, oh, for those that don't know, it's like, it's a designation of a corporation that you can have, which basically means that, um, you are allowed to do things that are not necessarily <clears throat> in the best interest of the shareholders if they're in the best interest of <clears throat> call it the world at large, right? The environment, the employees, that sort of thing. <clears throat> that's an oversimplification and probably wrong at some level, but that's the basic idea. But <clears throat> isn't it crazy that we needed to make something like that, right? We needed to make it, we needed to make a thing <clears throat> to say like, it's okay. It's okay if you don't, uh, want to dump stuff in the rivers. You know, you don't want to dump chemicals in the rivers, even though it costs a little bit more. We'll, we'll, we're going to let you get away with that as, as this new kind of company, right? <clears throat> but the point is not, again, which is right or wrong, but just the degree to which we as humans overthink everything and thingify everything. We make a rule, we make a process, we make a name, we make a label. And that's what we're all doing all the time is comparing yeah. and comparing, you know? Yes. And, and that's a good point because I think almost that B Corp status is as a challenger disruptor, an antidote to the conventional. So you always have to thingify the antidote. And, and I think that's purely because, and there is something about us human beings, we work in form in the game of life, right? So yes, it's this infinite, wonderful, powerful, intelligent source behind us you know but the rubber hits the road in form and that's tangible for people to get behind if you like and we don't really have enough trust because it's not tangible and visible enough in the uh power of i use a very trite phrase the power of intention the, the power of consciousness vibing to, to manifest itself into a formal structure that we would want. So quite quickly, things go from being that beautiful shared intention to a thing because that's tangible and you can, you can then go, look what we've done. We've done this. Even I think we preform things sometimes too, too, too readily and then they become concrete. So. So it's not, maybe it's not that we pre, we, we preform them is that they, they need to go into form and out of form and instead they go into form and then get solidified. Right. We do it with concepts. We do it with, with live people. You know, we do it with types of businesses. The fact that the mind takes things from the formless to the form, that's not a problem. It's, I think it's our misunderstanding of the real and never trueness of that is the problem. Um, and that's what gets in our way. And that's what the self then identifies with. And then it, it stops the potential of that formulas becoming whatever it could be because we've, we've gunged up the system with too much thingification of other stuff. And when we clear that out, which is what work you and I are doing really, I guess is clearing out, well, we're allowing the, the systems innate clearing out mechanism which is what i call realization to do its work so it's like yeah. we've all got uh, our own you're going to correct me here because you're an it guy and i'm not we've all got our own buffer clearing control out delete system in in the mind right as in that works does it good i'm, I'm glad i'm doing it <laughs> which realizes away old conditioning so it's so a really re, really a realization is is the dissolving of old conditioning and new forming and we've sort of gunked that up we, we, we've stopped that, that realization process from happening, which is why kids, little kiddies will have so many more realizations than we, we would do as adults. And I guess yeah. what we're doing is, is freeing that system up to work again.
Yeah, and there's a certain leap of faith at the beginning of working with folks, I think, in my experience, is convincing people, if you will, that there, that the system exists mm. because people are so locked into this idea that like, no, it just is how it is. Like why just, it, there's this world of form and there is nothing else. So like, so at the beginning, I find and work with clients, I say a lot, just trust me, just mm. run with me on that. You're, you're not going to see it today necessarily. You might not even see it the, you know, our first two sessions, but then all of a sudden you're going to see it. And they're like, well, what am I going to see? And we, I can't, you're going to see something new that you, that, and that's going to change everything. And to me, this understanding is like that. You have to be willing to see, you have to be willing to look into the unknown and then something will be shown to you and everything will look different. It's such a good point because I never used to value the unknown that much. I gave it a bit of like, oh yeah, well maybe, but I used to think the known was much better. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I could have a preference between the known and the unknown, I'd be like, known, please, known, yes. But now the unknown, wow. I mean, that's, it's infinite, the unknown. The known's bound to be finite. I mean, just think about it, right? <laughs> a yeah. thought, which is what the known is, is finite. It, it is a, a narrowing down of the infinite. So. I, I always say if a Martian was watching us operate in consciousnesses, they'd be going, why do they want to know everything? Why do they value <laughs> certainty? Why do they bind their own thinking? Can't they see there's a, a whole load of possibility in the unknown, in the space before thought, if you want to call it that, how come yeah. they get so bogged down in that? You know, and, mm -hmm. and, and the funny thing is it's back to that potato chips mind as I'm now going to call it. Right. It's the mind telling us there's not much to see here because it, it doesn't know what it doesn't know by definition, right? So it can't see the unknown. So therefore, when you say there's something unknown, it goes blank and goes, well, it can't be anything because I don't know about it, right? If there was something, I'd know about it. That's what the mind does. So we're using this faculty of the personal mind, which is very utilitarian and functionally useful in the wrong way. It has no grounds to be operating, judging the known or unknown. It's the wrong machine part of us to use. It'd be like using a thermometer to tell you how nice your potatoes were. It just doesn't do it. Right. It doesn't work. Um, and I, I think in a society where we do know a lot of stuff, we have a lot of scientific knowledge compared to even a hundred years ago, a ton of it. So it doesn't, we are not in the age of, you know, when, you know, a very short time ago, the earth was flat. Right. Everybody, everybody believes the earth was flat. So the idea of looking in the unknown uh, was necessary for somebody to, to discover that the earth wasn't flat. But we don't see that there are as many ridiculous things that we believe now or that we just haven't discovered, right? That we just don't, we don't even know are a thing to discover. You know, the, the, the cure for cancer might be, uh, you know, in, in, you know, the concrete underneath our shoes and we have, but we don't even know to look there. Right. <clears throat> yeah. But because we know so many things, I think there's this tendency to be like, nope, there's already, you know, a million volumes filled with scientific knowledge. I think we're good. Yes. And I think the other thing about <clears throat> flat, it, it's the appearing thing. So what we've got to get out of is thinking because something appears like that, it is that. Right. right. So it does sometimes appear that the world could be flat. It sure. does appear like that. You could go, well, I can't see over far over there. So you can see how they came up with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we've got to get away from the fact that because it's because something appears like that, it is that. Right. Because the mind's going to do that trick a thousand times a day. Right. So when you're really, 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 really annoyed with someone uh, or the world, and then that afternoon you're not. It, it appeared one way in the morning and it appeared something else in the afternoon, which is true or well, neither because they're both a creation of the mind. But we sometimes don't see that just because it appears, <laughs> it isn't how it is. And it's, that, that's, that's crazy that we, right. you'd think we'd be onto that by now. You'd think the number of times that happens to us, we would have caught on to the fact going, oh yeah, just because it appears like that, there's time, space and matter. That's what we are. No, why, why would we, why? 
it's 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 crazy. So so we believe ourselves too much. Right. I just wanted to ask you one other question because you mentioned something really interesting before we press record um, about you you said, and I might have got this wrong in where I'm going to say this to you. So correct me. You said uh, you said if we can see there's nothing wrong, the things that are wrong will change or something like that. Well, what did you say? Can you say it properly? Yeah. Um, I think what I said was, you know, at a certain level, there's nothing wrong with the world. And ironically, or paradoxically, if we can see that, then I think a lot of the things that we perceive are wrong with the world will sort of remedy themselves. Right. So can you say just a little bit more about that? <clears throat> yeah. And obviously, I don't have a, a method for this, right? But no. as I've come to see it, you know, the, the guy that I, that I was talking with yesterday, who, you know, came to see that, that he didn't want to cause suffering for this uh, person that had abused him. If we zoom out a little bit or really far, right, we, we, we need to understand that this whole world, and whether we just call that the earth or, you know, the, all the countries together or the universe or the, whatever, there's something above our pay grade. Right. Mm -hmm. There's, there's the thing that created all of this. <clears throat> and if you want to use evolution as a model, there's, you know, there's all that. There's definitely something above our pay level that's sort of running the system. And, and we get very attached to the way that we think things should be. And I'm saying that I think that the whole system is always working out for the benefit of the whole system all the time. And this may sound like a really messed up opinion. And probably I'm going to get flack for this for being a white guy or whatever. But if you just view the, the earth, let's say as, as, as if you take personalities and all of that out of, it, and you view it just as like a mechanical system or a chemical system. Well, of course, at some point, if, if the, if the system is getting overpopulated, the system is going to need to figure out by itself how to get rid of some of that population, right? Now it's unfortunate that a lot of times this happens in like a genocidal kind of way, which is right. But, but what if it happened in a more, you know, um, general way, right? Just every 10th person just died or something like that. We might not have and as big of a, of a deal with it and just realize that that's just part of the, the system regenerating, right? In the same way that a, that a tree uh, or, you know, some trees in a forest need to die every few years or whatever. And I think that we just get so attached to the idea of what's right and wrong and not seeing that other people have a completely opposite view of what's right and wrong. And we're all trying to create a utopia not realizing that everybody else has a different idea of utopia and not, and, and convincing ourselves that until we get there, the world is not going to be right. And, you know, you have your own version of that and, and everybody has his own version of that, his own version of that. There's obviously overlap, but it, this is also what creates wars. I mean, it's the same exact thing that creates wars, right? So I think that in many ways, there would be peace if we could all see that, you know. Yeah, I, 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 well, that's a lot I can say on that. But I mean, I'll, okay, I'll add one thing in to make it controversial. So, and this became really obvious to me during the pandemic. Is we don't think dying's okay, right? So you've got this this, this statistic: unnecessary deaths, and. We could have avoided unnecessary, unnecessary deaths, right? Yeah. And a virus comes along to to do what it does to the system, right? Okay. To make ultimately, I guess, to detoxify us by cleansing us out of things, and it, and it does cause people harm and kill people. And I'm not saying I'm not a psychopath. I don't want people to die, but that's just what happens in our system, in nature. You don't have a couple of animals looking at another part of nature going oh poor tree it's lost its, its its leaves it's that's what happens and i think this what you described a slightly idealistic view of 
how the, the learned self wants the world to be is very different to how the, if I use the phrase, the bigger I is, is okay with the world. Now, I think there's a, there's a confusion here because that true self that we are also has an innate sense of love and oneness which you might go well then they wouldn't want anyone to die and i go no i think it's opposite i i i don't think because you love the world you don't want bad things to happen well you wouldn't call something like dying a bad thing right i mean i i've had personal death you know my brother died part of me would love him to still be around on the, in this form but i i don't i'm not angry at the world about it it's just what happens and i think when you're not attached to yourself you see that and there's there's a even a beauty in that now this might be heard wrongly by different people coming from different views and i respect that and i'm sorry if i've offended anyone by saying this but and it's hard to describe it really without having the feltness behind it because it can just sound very harsh but does anything what i'm saying make a little bit of sense of what you were saying or am i on the wrong wrong wavelength no i think I, I completely agree with you. I think we are in the minority. That, but, but again, these ideas of, you know, why do we view death? Not all cultures view death as like a bad thing. No. You know, many, uh, you know, uh, Hindu cultures are, you know, are think at least differently. I don't want to say anything like, right? I mean, so there's a lot of our ideas about death are, are, are cultural. Um, but even, even that aside, I think we tend to not think of ourselves as part of nature, right? We think of like nature as that thing in the woods and, 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 and it's all part of it. And, and even, um, you know, I, I do think that climate change is a real thing. I do think that it is man-made. And I also think that even the man-made part of it is like part of a natural cycle, you know, and, and maybe there's something we can do to reverse it and maybe we won't be fast enough and, Maybe in 20 years, none of us will be here. And I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it because I, you know, I, uh, this is a very personal thing, but I want to live my life in a happy way. Now that doesn't mean that I'm complacent. I still do what I can do. You know, I'd sort of do the right things in terms of, you know, being environmentally friendly and so forth, but I don't spend a lot of time obsessing over it just like i don't spend a lot of time obsessing over my health because i know that i'm naturally healthy both mm. mentally and and physically you know i don't naturally i have common sense to know like oh you know lettuce is better than twinkies i, I just naturally know that but we all have that so i'm saying it's not that like i don't care about the world i don't really i don't care at a level of obsessing about too much of anything because yeah, i want to be happy I just want to be happy. And I think everybody does. And, and, uh, again, back to my paradox, if we were all happy, a lot of things would be different. A yeah. lot of things would be different. Yeah. And uh, so many things are a symptom of that sense of okayness and, and our widen happiness, just a sense of okayness. Cause you don't mean a hedonistic happy, right? You, you just like a sense of content and cause so many things, kindness, um, the wider perspective, um, forgiveness, resilience are all a symptom of that space of happiness or, or contentment. They all come from there. So if we start there, it would solve 95% of the world's problems already, right? Uh, and it would take time to, to drip through, as you say, but we don't need to go, we don't need to do anything else apart from, I think, just look at that. And I think the answer to the question is, well, how do we all spend more time being happy? As you say, the biggest thing that I've seen about this is recognize what we truly are and the nature of the mechanics of reality and, and consciousness in the mind. Once we have that, we just seem to have a deeper knowing and access to uh, uh, more, more happiness. So which is happiness on the inside, less conflict on the outside. And it's, it's so fundamentally simple that the, 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 the potato chip mind can't do it. It's, you know, <laughs> it, it, it can't handle it. So that's why it gets in our way. But that's all, that's all we're pointing to and on this or any of our podcasts. It's beautifully simple, really. Um, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Um, so, Naf, we, we've kind of um, been talking for a while. We probably need to bring this to a close in some way. Are there any kind of final thoughts that you would want to just share before we have to, have to wrap it up? 
Well, I think the one that we just talked about, I think is, is sort of the most important in all of this, which is, you know, as, as Gandhi said, like, be the change you want to see in the world. And to me, that doesn't mean, you know, if you want a cleaner world, go pick up trash. To, to me, that means like, be whole and complete and healthy and happy in yourself and the world will be that way. And, and that's, as you just said, it's too simple and it looks too simple. I'm not saying it works all the time, right? I'm, I'm not at all. But in that mindset of like, no, there, there doesn't need to be money in the bank for me to be happy. There doesn't need to be, you know, that I'm fit to be happy. There doesn't need to be that I'm healthy to be happy. It doesn't need to be that Ukraine war is over for me to be happy. I can be happy right now because I'm happy because that's who I am. Yeah. Uh, spot on, spot on. What, what, what a nice place to sort of just, uh, come to a rest on, on this conversation. Yeah, that, that's lovely. So, uh, thank you so much for, for, for the conversation. It's, it's been rich and, um, I want to just really give fun. listeners the chance to reach out to either of us as, as usual. Um, NAF's got a great book, Humans Working, um, with a lovely subtitle, uh, Why Culture and Mindset Beat Strategy, um, which I think it was a Peter Drucker quote that you slightly, which is what, why does culture beat uh, eat, eat strategy for breakfast? And I think yeah. you just added the human element into that. Um, so I highly recommend uh, your book, which I'll put a link in the show notes. And am, am I right to say that you'd be very happy to hear from anyone who's curious to know a little more? Yeah, absolutely. Whether in a business context or not. So listeners, as usual, like to make this as two-way as possible because we're just talking out into these microphone things and not sure what happens after that. So anyone's got any observations, insight, questions, challenges, just love to hear. Let's make this two ways possible. Um, Naf, thank you so much for coming along. Thank you. It was fun. And uh, everyone have fun being curious. Catch you next time. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to know more, check out our website at qualityofmind.biz. And also, feel free to reach out and leave us a review or a comment. Until next time, have fun being curious.